Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It feels like it's been forever since I hosted the show. Um, But the good news, I guess, if you've missed me, is that I am hosting... I think all of our shows in October are close to all of them. So I'm excited to be back with you all. Um, I will tell you that I am recording from what is something of a construction zone, which is the house that I've been waiting to move into for far longer than I thought I was going to be waiting to. And we probably shouldn't be here yet, but we are. So if you hear any hammers banging, I apologize in advance. Um, But uh, really quick public service message. If you have time and you like this podcast, please shoot us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people to find us. Um, The more reviews we have, the higher we rise so that we it makes it possible for people who have never heard of the show before to find the show. Uh, we have, as we always do, a great show for you today. We are going to be talking about net price calculators and how those can be incredibly valuable and important to your college process. We're also going to be talking about colleges that have some atypical deadlines or maybe some other quirks or anomalies in their process that we wanted you to be aware of. But before we get to that, I am super excited to welcome Chris Prolongo, who is Associate Director of Admissions at the University of Vermont. Welcome, Chris. Awesome. Thanks, Beth. Great to be here. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Um, Chris, I, I, I noted this to you in an email, but I am particularly excited to welcome you to the show because I have spent quite a bit of time in Burlington, that lovely picture that's behind you. Um, my stepson graduated from UVM in 2019 and actually stayed on for an extra year to get his graduate degree. We are a big UVM family, very uh, big fans of the school. It was a really great fit for him. I am wearing my own son's uh, college gear here. He was not willing to consider UVM. He didn't something about going a little too far north for him. But I, I would have been a big fan if he decided to to go there. Um, really quickly, I, I, I want to give an opportunity for you to just tell us a little bit more about UVM. I mean, what I just shared is lovely, but it's not really telling anybody anything about the institution. <laughs> actually, it did my job for me. I usually start these presentations by just turning around and pointing to the picture behind me. And that's pretty much Burlington and UVM. It speaks for itself. It actually looks like that this time of year. Fall is in full swing up here in Burlington. Leaves are changing. It is quintessential New England. And uh, it's an amazing place. So, yes, as a transplanted New Yorker, I'm New York City born and raised. I've been in Burlington about seven years now myself. I'm in higher education much longer. I'm happy to speak about UVM and frankly, a place where I believe in and is a wonderful place to live, not just a member as a student, but also as a community too. And just a real quick elevator speech on us. We are located in Burlington, Vermont, as mentioned, Um, depending on where you're coming from, various ways to get here. We have Burlington International Airport about three miles from campus with direct flights out of most major cities, usually not a far drive. And now if you're coming from the New York City area, we offer train service directly to Burlington as well for folks coming from the tri-state. So plenty of ways to get here also. We're about 10,000 undergraduates at UVM. Um, Roughly class size for us is about 30 to 32 students. Student faculty ratio about 16 to 1. We are most different from most other state flagships in the sense that our population actually draws mostly from out of state. About 77% of my students will come from outside the state of Vermont, increasingly outside of New England. We actually had our one of our biggest classes in our history this past year, and more than half of the students came from outside New England proper. Yeah, it's exciting. We are seeing that in Vermonters. Don't get me wrong. We love you, too. There are plenty of spaces for you to step. We don't have as many Vermonters in the state, so we are increasingly drawing from out of state. Uh, but last year's class, as mentioned, one of our record ones came from 48 different states over 17 different countries. So, again, lots of time to change at UVM over seven different schools and an honors college. Um, and again, located in this idealistic setting where the best of both worlds is very cliche in my work, but you really can't have it at UVM. I feel like you can have the academic experience with this beautiful backdrop right on your doorstep. Yeah, I mean, the location really can't be beat unless you are like my son and you thought that it was maybe a tad too cold. But even in northern New England, to me, it's not so crazy cold because you do have the lake right there. And so I'm a fan. I don't want to be seen as we don't push any particular college on this podcast. So, you know, this is not going to be right for everyone, but for it's certainly worth a look. And 
I particularly like that it has that kind of private school feel, even though it is a public institution. And that's always kind of cool. One thing for me, adding to that private school feel is a new addition to your admissions process this year, and that is early decision. So for our listeners, early decision is binding, right? You apply by an early deadline, typically around November 1st. You're going to hear uh, usually by mid-December. Um, and if you get accepted, you agree to withdraw all of your other applications and commit to that institution. So I'm curious about the decision to add early decision, um, which is a little less typical for a public school. Sure. No. And, you know, really comes by, it's going to sound uh, basic to say it, but demand, you know, UVM is in a nice place to sense that the last three to four years, we see substantial application increase. This past year, we had over 30,000 applicants to the university. And what's nice about that is that we are seeing more and more applicants from over the world and more and more different identities and more and more different socioeconomic sets. And as we're hearing uh, students who are applying to UVM from different parts of the world, we've heard the last few years that, you know, if you guys had early decision, I would have applied early decision. You know, so after two, three, four years of hearing that and then seeing our applications continue to rise, particularly with early action, where almost two thirds of our 30,000 applications came in last year, we decided to give early decision a chance. Now, of course, we're going to see it's see how the next few years play out. And we're not expecting a huge early decision class this year, although our numbers are running quite well so far early into this application season. Um, but at the same time, I'm also really doing do service in saying that to dispel the notion that we're going to become that much more selective around early action and regular decision. Um, I work with access families here at UVM, and I think it's important that everybody has an equal opportunity to be considered for the institution. So early decision is just one of many options, but that kind of went to the calculus of why to pick early decision and why it might be an option for some students, because frankly, we've heard it for the last few years. So do you anticipate that, um, you know, do you and you may not be able to sh- share this and you may not know, but is are you going to try and keep it to a certain percentage of the entering class coming in through early decision? You know, one of the things we are seeing are some schools out there filling, you know, 50, 60, 80 percent of the class in early decision. That's a little scary. Um, what, any sense of what you anticipate? <laughs> scary for me, too. It changes my yeah. whole reading dynamic. I'm on my team. But no, I think having done this at a previous institution I was affiliated with, the first year we offered both early action and early decision, we didn't see a huge application class. We saw some, don't get me wrong. We had a fair amount of students apply, but it takes a few years to build that momentum, in my opinion. And who knows? Every year is different. I should couch this conversation by saying, you know, students are applying different ways, especially post-pandemic. We're seeing patterns in higher education and application process change. Um, But we don't expect it to be a huge windfall this first year out. Um, And again, really emphasize the point that for early action and regular decision, well, more early action and regular, and we'll talk about that, are very viable options at UVM. And while we are looking to capitalize on as many students who do apply to the university and give them the opportunity to attend early decision, we're only going to do so if it's the right fit for the institution academically, socially, personally, et cetera. Right. That's what I always tell students is that early decision is really nice and it gives you an advantage if you're already a competitive applicant. But if you are not competitive, early decision doesn't automatically make you so. And it sounds like philosophically uh, we're aligned on that front. So, So that's always good. No, absolutely. It has to be the right fit. You know, and I always, yeah. and I just got back from a New York City recruiting trip, and I really emphasize that early decision, apply for the right reasons. It's your number one school. You want to be there. If it applies, you've done your financial homework. You mentioned net price calculator at the beginning of this conversation. You know, make sure you do your due diligence before applying to any school early decision, because, and again, not to assume, it's a binding agreement. You're telling your at school it's your number one choice. If I get in, I'm attending. You want to make sure you have your financial considerations also uh, factored into that work as well. So it is an option. It's not the only option. And again, I do think early action is something that is to be considered as schools get more and more competitive, particularly in UVM's peer and aspirant set. Mm-hmm. Um, so early action is something that I would advocate for because, again, it is non-binding. You still find out your decision earlier, but you have some space until May 1st to make that decision. Um, regular is still an option, but for some programs, it is getting very competitive. Right. So actually, to that point, it is important to note here um, at a lot of schools where they offer early decision, it's early decision and regular decision at some schools. It's early action or regular decision at UVM and a couple of other schools that are out there. You're actually going to continue offering both. So what I'm hearing from you is if you really are interested in UVM, you don't necessarily have to sign a binding agreement, but you certainly should get it in by that early deadline if you can. 
Yes, I would say so. You know, and again, to put numbers behind stats, you know, I think a good that's the best ideas of Contrig using data, and we're in the same boat. I feel like among EVM's thirty thousand applications last year, almost twenty thousand—that's almost wow. two thirds of the class—came in early action. So, right. again, for students, I would emphasize particularly some of our programs that do have capped enrollment in terms of space in their class. Early action is a path that if UVM is among your top few choices for attendance, you may want, you will want to consider in terms of early action and early decision. I don't mean to uh, dissuade students from doing it. It's a great option. And mm-hmm. the fact is, even though we don't have numbers, it's our first year, it will be easier to get in. I mean, I think that's pretty standard. I've read for some very selective institutions, some mm-hmm. not so much, and some in between. And you're making a binding commitment. That matters to the admissions committee, right? So I think no matter what institution, if you're going early decision, that number you gave before about admitting the class, that percentage is fair. And some schools will do that. Again, UVM's not quite there yet, I don't think. We're not going to see a few years. But at the same time, it has to be the right decision for the right reasons. Right. And then all all that makes sense. Really quickly, you mentioned there are some programs that are capped or that, you know, by the time you apply in regular decision may be filled. Can you throw out a couple of those for us? Sure. UVM, historically, our nursing program, anything with pre-medical at UVM has been competitive because we're only one of a handful of institutions in the country that has a full level one trauma hospital right on campus. It's not a car or a subway or a train right away. It's right across the quad. Um, So our students can come here and take coursework and just walk across the campus and get right where they need to be. That's been appealing. And it's UVM Medical Center. It's the largest hospital north of Boston. So for our medical students, anything from nursing to exercise science, with capped enrollment spaces, you definitely want to try to get your information and the first wave of applicants. Um, I would say increasingly anything environmental sciences as well. UVM has a commitment to sustain ah, commitment to sustainability, the beautiful environment behind me. You know, I emphasize with my skiers and my people who want to get on a Lake Champlain, if we're going to enjoy this beautiful playground that we have, we have to make sure we keep it this way. And that goes to taking care of my environment, responsible agriculture, sustainability. And any students who are applying to those programs, we've seen from all over the world, frankly, a really peaked interest. And some of these programs have lab spaces, which means we can only admit so many to make sure that the academic quality stays the same of the experience of the student. So those are just a few. There are many more as we're, again, seeing increases in applications, record numbers. But those are a couple that worth mentioning. Got it. Okay. That's really helpful. Thank you. Uh, Okay. Last big question I have for you is around um, your supplemental essay, which is optional. And I, you know, I've been paying attention because like I said, my stepson just graduated and back in 2019, he did not have to write an essay for many years. Vermont did not require anything additional, but a couple of years ago, you introduced this optional essay. I am not a huge fan of the optional piece because, you know, in my work, we deal with a lot of the stress and anxiety that families and students have around, well, what does it mean when it's optional? So I would love to hear from you on, um, you know, who should write this and, and kind of the thinking behind making it optional. Sure. Happy to do so. And, you know, I should point out every institution I've been affiliated with has had an optional essay, but... I point that you? out because, oh, no, I say exactly, right? Everyone will, um, but I point that out to say I give the same answer for the last 20 some odd years in the sense that, you know, we talk a lot in admissions about stats and numbers and acceptance rates. You just heard about, you know, early decision acceptance rates. A big part of this world is holistic review, right? And I don't mean mm-hmm. to dispel the notion that transcripts transcripts drive the conversation every school I've been at. Testing, a lot of schools are test optional. That that's probably a whole different webinar conversation. Um, but for the optional essay, it's the only time outside of the personal statement that I get to hear the student's voice, right? Recommendation letters are somebody else. Transcript only tells the numbers or the letters. Testing is debatable across the board. The optional essay gives me that much more insight into who you are as a person. And we'd be complete hypocrites to say, you know, we're looking to diversify our class and bring to our community and shape our campus and then not look at your spoken word, right? right. So for yeah. us, the personal essay is a general essay in most cases where you, that applies to any institution you're writing to. And that's important. We read it mm-hmm. and we do want to hear your story no matter what it is. The optional essay gives us that much more information about why our school. Right. And at UVM, we have five prompts. There's the YUVM essay, there's the uh, constructive discourse, the builder essay, and the one that's gotten national press the last couple of years, the Ben and Jerry's essay, where we right. ask students, yeah, we ask students to name a flavor of Ben and Jerry's, real or imagined, that best describes who they are. And we've gotten really positive feedback that while it is another essay, I don't mean to discount that, it's a paragraph, not a full one. Um, it gives students the chance to say, you know, here's why UVM, here's why me, here's why there's a match. And I think that was a creative way to do that. So my advice on the optional essay is to, frankly, 
do it. Um, I think it's really important. (laughs) They are optional technically, but I can't tell you how disappointing it is to read a great application and you get to that space where a student has one more way to show their interest in your institution, that's blank. Um, So I would highly emphasize for any school at UVM selectivity or above to do that optional essay, but have fun with it. It's not meant to be trickery. We're not we're not accounting for which one you choose. We have five options. Just do one. Don't do all five. And we, it doesn't matter to us which one you do. It's totally up to you. But again, it's just a way to learn more about you. So hopefully that takes some of the angst out of it. I know it's easy for me to say as the reader, not the writer. But I do think it's important to have a little fun with it. And just tell us who you are. That's all we're yeah. looking for. Yeah, I mean, I think you're underscoring what I generally say, which is if you really are interested in going to the school, if they have an optional essay, you really should be writing it. So to all our listeners out there, in case you weren't totally getting what Chris was saying, you really need to write this essay. Um, very true, very true. I could think of maybe a handful of circumstances under which it would not be such a big deal, um, but it probably doesn't apply to you listeners. So therefore, write the essay. Um, we have one minute. And in that minute, I did want to ask, let's talk about that Ben and Jerry's essay. What? Um, it's a fun essay. Like you say, it's been gotten a lot of press. Um, any tips or advice you have for students who are going to work on that essay? <laughs> the 30 seconds or less that we have. Yes. No, I think as mentioned, like I said, just, you know, try to be yourself, but don't try to overextend yourself either. I find some students who try to show me something different and I've been reading thousands of applications for 21 years. Right. And many admissions counselors, we all come from different identities, different backgrounds, different experiences. So I think that optional essay, whether it's Ben and Jerry's or others, you know, just try to give your creative side, try to show your personal side and a little bit of who you are, because that's ultimately what we're looking for. Like a lot of us can't offer interviews. We get 30,000 apps. We can't be equitable by meeting every single one. So that optional essay is a good way to tell us your story. So I think for us, if it's Ben and Jerry's, whether it's uh, New York Super Chunk or it's Half Baked or it's Fish Food or it's Glam Fire Trail Mix or all the ones we've met, or some of the really creative ones that we've seen where one student wrote an essay about Donut Denial. Was her essay title. I thought that was great. That's cute. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think we have a little fun with it, but know that the essay usually just confirms what we're thinking on the application, not something that's going to usually make or break you. So again, at the same time, we just want to learn more about you. And if you want to be creative, have some fun with it, that's what we're hoping for. Awesome. And thank you for underscoring that as well, because I often tell my kids, this doesn't have to be so serious all the time. You don't have to always be in pure academic mode. We, you know, as an admissions officer, as a former admissions officer, I just trying to get to know the student in the file. And if you show some personality, that helps with that. So yeah. I appreciate it. I like for what it's worth. I don't love that it's optional, but I like your question. So, you know, it's a it's a 50 50 for me. So on that, well, we hope that helps. Yeah, because again, I think in a typical question I get at UVM is what's a typical UVM student? There is no atypical UVM student. But our students, I think, overall find a pretty even keel between focusing on doing amazing things in the classroom, but also doing amazing things on campus as well. And I feel like those optional essays are a chance to express that. Like I'm looking to just grow and excel and achieve and just become my true self in a variety right. of spaces, too. So hopefully that essay gives folks a chance to do that no matter which one they choose. Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for joining the show today. I really appreciate it. Oh, Beth, it was a pleasure. I wish everyone the best of luck. Reach out to your admissions counselors. And that's probably my biggest advice is don't be afraid to ask questions. It's a very complex process, constantly changing, even for us who are on this side of it. Don't be afraid to reach out. It's frankly the favorite part of our job. So I yeah. wish you the best of luck and you're going to wind up somewhere great, no matter where that is. Well, thanks again, Chris, for joining us. Um, we're going to go to a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about those net price calculators. So don't go away. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I've been promising you a conversation about net price calculators, and here is that conversation. Uh, joining me is my colleague here at College Coach, Amy Yorsaner, and Amy is a former financial aid officer at, wait for it, Babson <laughs> College, Berkeley College of Music, BU Medical College, MIT, and Hesser College. So, Amy, you certainly have the background to talk us through net price calculators, how they might differ from school to school, given your different experiences. So welcome to the show and thanks for joining. I'm super glad to be here. It's such an important topic. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Why don't we start way at the beginning and um, before we even get to the net price calculator, what is the difference between the sticker price and the net price? It's a great question. So just note, anybody listening, that there are two prices for every college. There's the sticker price. That's the price that most schools post on their websites that you're going to pay for tuition and fees and housing and meal plans and so on and so forth. And then there's the net price. That difference is... It's really the sticker price less any grants or scholarships that you're receiving. That balance, that remaining difference is the net price. That's the price that your family can expect that they may have to pay out of pocket. Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful. And is always the, it was something that we talk a lot about, which is don't necessarily let the sticker price scare you. I mean, it can scare you for sure, but um, know that there may be another price that is less than the sticker price that right. you might pay. So that's where the net price calculator comes in. And maybe you Definitely. can share a little more about what that is exactly. Sure. So schools, I can't even think of how many years ago this came up, but it's been a number of years now that net price calculators have become the norm. And really what it is designed to do, they're available on every college's websites, um, and it's really designed to allow students to enter information about themselves and to find out um, what students like them paid in to attend that school in the previous year. So it takes into, again, taking into consideration the grants and scholarships. So right. it really is designed to give you an estimate before a needs analysis can be performed. Got it. Okay. So with that in mind, how do they actually work? And I, I should probably add that I went and did these net price calculators myself. <laughs> so to all of our listeners out there thinking, well, this is really nice. Maybe I'll use it. Maybe I won't. I, I won't. It was a hugely valuable part of the process for me. So let's talk about how they work. So essentially, the net price calculators are going to ask you questions about your family's finances. So some may ask about GPA and test scores and activities that may qualify you for specific types of aid, but overall it's gonna be your financial information. Um, and it uses those answers to figure out how much in grants and scholarships based on that school's awarding policy um, that they're likely to award. It then subtracts that from the cost of attendance or those direct charges to see what, those, what your real costs will be. And that's why we say don't get stuck on the sticker price because different schools have different fun funding levels and you don't really know what you're going to be asked to contribute until you see that net price. Right, do, do they all work the same way um, in terms of ask for the same information and spit out the same information? Some may have school-specific questions, so not necessarily. They are built, so you can't just do one and say, okay, this is what I expect it to be all across the board, because things fluctuate, things change. Mm -hmm. So they may have specific questions that they focus on within their school that impacts their awarding philosophies or their funding strategies. Um, but also, again, it's, it's unique to that school because the costs are different for each school. So those are going to be different per school, which is why we may say, hey, go to all these 10 different schools you might be applying to and look. It's right. just to give you that real rough estimate and, right. and to give you a sense of what it could look like. So you guys can strategize about, OK, what's going to what makes the most sense for my family? Right, because if there are differences and one school might fund you so that all you're paying is $25,000 a year versus right. another school that might say, we're going to expect you to contribute $35,000 a year, that can and should factor into your thinking if for you, the $35,000 is not viable, but the $25,000 is, right? It makes it, it definitely makes a difference in what makes the most financial sense for your family. Um, you may try to stretch that and you may come up with philosophies and maybe you want to make that $35,000 work, but maybe you can't. Maybe that's not reality. And so those net price calculators allow you to set the tone of that conversation with your student and parents 
earlier than waiting for awards and then maybe having to make a decision the next day. Right, so and being surprised, really surprised, right? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It's supposed to take it, it's supposed to take some of that shock value because you're right. The sticker prices can be alarming. Um, so when you're looking at that number price, it puts it in better perspective, but also gives you a, a place to start that conversation, to not be shocked, to not be surprised. Right. So to be clear, the net price um, change uh, may change based on the school you're applying for, for all the reasons you just said. They have different yeah. amounts of funding available and may have different philosophies about what they consider, what they don't consider, that kind of thing. Well, and as well as the cost of attendance. So right. not every school has the same tuition charges. So it's a very different cost structure from a, a community college to a four-year public university to a, a four-year private. So right. those costs are different. So the basic formula is that cost of attendance less this kind of family contribution that they're determining is financial need and then where they can fund that to get to that net price. So it starts with the costs of what that program is. So when that's you know, when that changes, it's obviously going to be unique to, to the school. Exactly. One thing that I'll just throw out there that I ended up doing when I was working with my son on his list was I was looking for schools where the cost of attendance, especially if it was an out of, he was going to be an out-of-state student for a public institution, where I already knew that the cost of attendance was pretty close to something I could afford. And there are really variances between how much one out-of-state tuition or how much one state school if you're out-of-state costs versus another. So I didn't really want him to wind up with schools on his list where attending from out-of-state would have been almost as much as attending a private institution, right? So right. that's another thing that I would encourage parents to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So here's the probably the biggest question of all, in my mind anyway, how accurate are these net price calculators? What are the odds that you get a number doing the net price calculator that is way below or higher than the number that you get from the school after you apply? I would say it depends, right? It's all in how accurate the information you're putting into the calculator is at the very yeah. beginning. If you're really using rough round numbers and not what was on your your tax return, your prior prior year tax return, then you know you can't expect that to be an accurate estimate. But just keep in mind, like I keep using this word and I just wanna make sure that I, I drive this point home. The net price calculator is designed to be an estimate. It is not the full calculation. It is merely an estimate. So if you want a really good estimate, you need to start with really good data. And so right. it's it can only be as accurate as the information you've put into it. Um, right. And I, so I tell families like, okay, plus or minus 10 to 20%, like give yourself a range of expectation of realistic expectation. Right. But I, I think your point is an excellent one, right? Garbage in, garbage out. If you are just sitting down one night like, oh, let me see what these net price calculators say. You put in a number that you think is right. You get a number that you think is amazing. And now in your head, that's how much this school is going to cost, only to discover that that number you put in, or you may have forgotten what you put in, was wildly off, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I've had many of those conversations. And so from a school perspective, what I would say to families who are like, hey, I did this net price calculator and this is the result I got. Why is yours so different? Mm -hmm. We would encourage people, go back to your net price calculator, print out every page or save save it as a PDF on your computer so that you can have that conversation with the school saying, hey, I did your net price calculator. This is what I put in. They can compare it to the figures that they used and try to figure out what, what the big reason is. Mm -hmm. I would say overall, people undervalue home equity. Um, they don't put their tax deferred plans in. They don't, you know, so they're not including all of their income and asset sources mm -hmm. as based on what we can see when they do the final application. So those are usually the big differences. Right. So I love the idea, though, of um, what you just suggested, which is saving the calculation or printing it out so that you at least have something to refer to other than, well, I did the net price calculator and it was different. Right. Well, if you don't have that printout, how, you can't speak from a, a factual place. You, you're speaking right. from memory. And that's exactly. always faulty, right? And so at, the, at those levels, if you don't save it and you are trying to have that conversation with a school, I would suggest going and doing it again. Mm -hmm. Do it again with the numbers that you, you know, even if they're not the exact numbers you use the first time around, 
go back with your numbers, do it again, save it this time, and then see where it lands in relation to what the school has produced for you. Right. And if you do it again, and you still come out with something that's completely disparate, then you might have something to really talk to them about. Or you might find like, oh, that's actually pretty close. I must have done something wrong the first time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, So net price calculator is an early decision. In your mind, what's the connection between these two? Super important. I would say the net price calculator from a financial perspective. I know from an admissions perspective, this will be different, but from a finance perspective, and can you afford this decision? As we know, early decisions are binding decisions. So you're signing something saying, I'm going to make this work. So if you're applying, you really want to be pretty sure you can afford the the program. And the only way you can really do that is the net price calculator, because they don't do the needs analysis very early. As you can see from the deadlines, when you're applying, the financial aid deadline for early decision is right around the same time the admissions deadline is. So they're not going to know your financial aid offer before you have to decide, do I want to do early decision? Right. So the best tool that you have at your disposal is that net price calculator, um, because it will give you that estimate ahead of time. And, you know, we've, we do talk on the show about is early decision really a viable option for families who need financial aid? And yes and no is kind of where I net out on this, right? So if you've done your due diligence, you've done your net price calculator, you know, in your head what you think you can afford, and the net price calculator shows that you're fairly aligned, and it's truly your student's top choice. And you're willing to spend that money for them to go to that early decision school, it can be a great choice. Um, If you wanted to be in a position to compare financial aid offers or merit uh, scholarship offers and choose from the most, um, I I don't, the the college that will cost you the least is I guess where I am, um, or the most financially attractive then early decision is not going to be for you because you're only ever going to get the one offer if if you've if you're going that way, correct? I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Couldn't yeah. agree more to be honest. Like yeah. I would say, you know, if you're really sure and you're willing to okay, you've done the net price calculator or maybe you haven't, you've got to be more than comfortable, 150% comfortable with okay, with paying full cost if that's what if that's what it right. says. Right. You can still appeal if, if changes in your circumstances happen, but if you come back to the school to say, well, I want to be released from this decision because I can't afford it. Well, you've had opportunity to test those boundaries to see if you could. Mm-hmm. So you really should know. And that's why, you know, when we do our counseling sessions, we just say, look, you really want to consider long and hard about early decision. It's great for these reasons, but this is what you miss out on exactly the, the topics you were just mentioning. So we really push families to think about that choice before before going right. in and to definitely do that net price calculator. It's kind of a no-brainer. It's right. only one school. If you're applying early decision, it's one school. So you can do that net price calculator and see where it lands so that you're not shocked and you're not figuring out and scrambling, now what do I do? I've made this commitment that I can't follow through on. Right. So I mean, that it, helps you alleviate that position. Yeah, and you know, obviously the, the, the huge knock against early decision, and I think it's a really good one, (laughs) is that it is largely for the wealthy who don't have to worry about how they're going to pay for this or who maybe it's not going to be super easy to write that check, but they can do it and they're willing to do it. Whereas if you are, um, you know, just don't have that capability, it really, it does kind of cut you out of that. I, you know, I experienced that myself when my son was applying last year. I, there were schools that he was interested in that maybe he could have given himself a little bit of a boost by going early decision, but uh, there was no way that I could see and further complicated by the fact that, you know, I'm divorced. So I had, we had two people who had to kind of agree on this, that we really were in a position where he could really commit himself in that way. Um, And that's, it's not ideal, right? But we're not here to talk about how ideal or not early decision is just do the net price calculator. Exactly. It is essentially going in. This whole process is about going in eyes wide open and prepared. Yeah. Um, and that's not just, you know, financially prepared, but that's mentally prepared. It really is about wrapping your brain around, can is this an affor- affordable option for my family? Does this make sense? Yep. And I, you know, I don't think we stress enough on the show and we do stress it all the time. That, that has to be a major consideration for you. It does. Amy, any last thoughts um, for our families on net price calculators or anything that we've talked about today? 
kind of besides going and doing them, <laughs> um, I would just say, again, go in expecting an estimate. Don't go in expecting this to be the exact award you're going to receive. Um, know that they're not tracking all of your personal information. They're not storing this information. I get a lot of questions on, is this private or is this information shared? And it's not. That's This is really for your, for your benefit. Um, so utilize your resources. And if you have questions after you get your net price calculator about what it means, that's a springboard for a conversation to the school. So it opens and creates dialogue. And that's ultimately when you have financial concerns, exactly the kind of conversations you need to have with financial aid offices. When you have concerns, when you want to figure out how you're going to map this out and make this work, obviously book your sessions with with College Coach, but also we can help you shape the conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Amy, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's honestly my pleasure. You guys have a great day. All right. Um, we're going to take a another quick break. And when we get back, we are talking about colleges with either atypical deadlines or applications. Um, so don't go away. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We have a fun segment for you here at the end. I don't know, fun, um, but certainly something to uh, for you to pay attention to if you are um, applying to any of these schools. Um, we're talking about schools that maybe have some atypical deadlines or maybe they have their own applications. So it's not going to be quite as easy as simply adding them to the Common App and sending everything out by, say, November 1 or January 1. Um, if you're doing that or thinking that way, you might actually miss some important deadlines. So joining me today for this conversation is my colleague here at Bright Horizons, college coach, Lauren Randall, who also happens to be a former admissions officer at Georgetown, one of the schools we're talking about today. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Beth. (laughs) So uh, Georgetown, not really an atypical deadline here, right? What's different about Georgetown? Yeah, so early action, similar deadlines around November 1st, but what makes it really different is that they're not on the common application. And I think in today's world, that alone uh, makes it unusual. Right. Um, we were trying to think of some you know, schools that that have their own, that only accept their, their own application. So let me back up just a little bit. I think that there's plenty of schools out there that do have their own application, but they are also on the Common App and they accept either one. They don't have a preference of their own app or, their, or the Common App. Right. Uh, I think it's really rare for a school to only take their own application. And a few that come to immediately come to mind is Georgetown, MIT, Rutgers, and the military academies. Yeah. Yeah, certainly common schools for maybe less so the military academies, although we do have students every year applying to those. But certainly MIT, Georgetown, Rutgers, many of our students are going to apply to these schools. There's always that moment, right, where you realize like, oh, that's a whole other application that we have to be thinking yeah, about. What do you with mean I schools? can't just use my common app? Like, what? yeah. Exactly. I'm searching the comment, but I don't see George. I'm like, that's because it's not there. <laughs> exactly. Any you you used to work at Georgetown, um, as I may have shared with our listeners before, but maybe not. When I was applying to college, the dean of admissions at Georgetown was the dean of admissions, <laughs> and I am not that young, so he's been there for a while. I'm curious about your sense of why Georgetown continues to only offer their own application and, and kind of 
Yeah. Why, for lack of a better word? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because we also have a, a wonderful colleague now at Bright Horizons um, who worked at MIT. And so I was chatting with her about this, um, you know, because I, I, I know Georgetown's philosophy. And I was like, well, why MIT? Before I answer the question, what I don't, I have absolutely no idea why Rutgers only takes their own application. Right. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear with the military academies, you know, they, they, have specific questions, you know, they're, they are expressing their values and what they're looking for through that unique application. Rockers, I really can't speak to it. I'm not sure why. Yeah. Um, but I, but when I was talking to our colleague, um, former admissions officer at MIT, what I learned was really similar to, to Georgetown's philosophy. And, um, you know, the Dean you're talking about, I worked for him. Um, and he was really clear that, you know, that he did not want to artificially inflate application numbers, mm. He's, you know, and let's be clear, Georgetown and MIT have very, very, very low acceptance rates. Right. But he said, you know, he was really clear. He said, if, if we wanted single digit acceptance rate tomorrow, just go on the common app. It will increase application numbers. The right. more they are not increasing seats um, on campus or beds on campus. So the more applications that are, that are, submitted the few, the the lower the acceptance rate um, and so that was first and foremost um you know his philosophy and that's exactly what um i heard about mit as, as well yeah and you know i can get behind that and certainly when as someone who's helping students through the process or for both of us it definitely is one of those moments where you think, oh, a whole other application. But what it does tend to do is weed out the students who are just saying, ah, oh, I just thought I'd throw another application in here. You're, there's no throwing in an application when you have to, in essence, craft an entirely different application than the others that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Dean of Admissions at, at Georgetown was very clear, but, you know, students would say, well, you're making it so much harder to apply. He's yeah, 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 yeah. It should not be that easy to just throw out 30 applications and really felt that while there's a point to the common application, it didn't necessarily help college admissions as a whole, right. um, that it increased applications. You know, the same student is now applying to more schools. Um, they're only going to accept one offer. They can only attend one school. Um, so he had no issue with the fact that, yes, it was harder to to apply to Georgetown, and he liked it that way. Um, and similarly, he was talking to, about MIT's philosophy. Maybe you know, not saying like let's let's make it harder, right. um, but because it's a self-selecting pool, mm -hmm. students are intentionally filling the, these applications out. They want it, so we definitely found that it was a more competitive pool, and like meaning that the right students were applying. Yes, yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, my, our colleagues said about MIT, that it was more of a matchy, the students were more matchy yes. um, with the school because they really wanted to apply. Right. Yeah, they really had to think about it. I mean, with Georgetown, you can basically take your main common app essay and use it for the Georgetown essay. And so in essence, you are really simply writing supplemental essays like you would for anyone. But there's no denying that the act of having to fill out an entirely different application is a lot more work than simply adding a school to your list on the Common App and then filling and then answering those supplemental questions. So I get it. Um, I'm not always a huge fan of uh, different philosophies. You know, when Georgetown went uh, test optional, they really were very clear that they really, if you had any testing at all, they wanted it. I didn't love that. But on this front, I, I kind of can get behind I kind of can get in this, which is, you know, someone should record this and <laughs> for posterity's sake. All right. So that covers those those schools. Um, just important for everyone out there to be aware on at the very base of it, right, is we're not being exhaustive here, but MIT, Georgetown, the military academies, Rutgers, these are schools with their own applications. So if you're wondering why you can't find them on the Common App, they're not there and they're not on the coalition or another application other than their own. So... Um, all right. Another thing I wanted to talk about or we wanted to talk about today was a, a, a number of schools we're seeing lately with 
earlier deadlines than November 1. And, you know, just a few years ago, UNC Chapel Hill was really the only one that came to mind for me. And they had that October 15th deadline. And that man that came fast. And uh, a a few times I did have a student say, oh, I want to add UNC Chapel Hill, but hadn't mentioned it until maybe the first week in October, at which point they either had to scramble to hit that 1015 deadline or go regular decision as as we are on the record here, or certainly I am, early action is your or priority admission is your path to these larger state schools. I cannot stress enough the importance of hitting that early action deadline. So something has happened and a number of other schools have joined UNC. Lauren, any thoughts about why you think this is? And then maybe some of those schools, uh, if you could toss those out for us. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I have not spoken directly to their admissions office. I, 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 I can only project um, that my guess is that they need more time to review the the, yeah. the, the number of applicants. Um, even two weeks difference, it makes a big difference in terms of getting through the number of applications. That's the only thing I can guess. Um, but in terms of, tr- it is interesting of who is trending this way. Um, and it really seems to be focused on large publics in the South east yes um, so i don't know if they're just all getting on you if now they're competing again or with each other um and unc was the trailblazer on this I, i'm not exactly sure um but when we're going through some of them and looking at these and primarily it's early action large public schools southeast um and then there's some nuance to it could just be for their own in-state residents applying to these programs so you know by the time this, this show airs, we will right. have already missed uh, or passed um, the Georgia Tech early action deadline for Georgia residents only. And that's November 10th. Uh, sorry, October 10th. October, October 10th. 10th. <laughs> um, so October 10th for Georgia residents for early action to Georgia Tech. Um, a couple of others that are early and coming up really soon. So we mentioned UNC Chapel Hill. That's October 15th, but so is University of Georgia. Um, Clemson is October 15th. The University of South Carolina is October 15th. Um, an, an early decision one that I found is the College of Charleston. So they're also mm. October 15th, which I was surprised by um, for them to be October 15th as well. Um, just a a few other out there. Um, so Florida State residents only um, for Florida State University. They're also October 15th. And then Texas A&M has nothing to do with your residency, but Texas A&M for engineering applicants. They're October 15th. So. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is interesting, the different nuances. And again, as admissions offices, um, I, we hear a lot of talk about making it easier, streamlining the process. Um, but at the end of the day, they're going to do what works for them. And so it's always a little like, and I know we're not school counselors. If you're in a school setting, these earlier deadlines are even a bigger challenge, right? Because you are responsible for writing recommendation letters. Um, you have to make sure that the teachers who are writing the recommendation letters, if any of these schools require them, are writing those letters. You have to be sure you're getting your pieces in. I know for University of South Carolina, where my son applied last year, so long as his piece was in by October 15th, it was okay. But the school stuff had to be in by November 1st. So it wasn't like there was a huge huge, you know, additional amount of time for them to get their pieces in. But um, I have to imagine, and you're a former school counselor, did those much earlier deadlines, are they problematic for you in the way that I've just kind of laid out? Um, They're not fun. (laughs) They're not fun. I mean, it really, it's a lot of work on the school counseling office um, because a lot of times the students don't catch it or, uh, you know, they come in last minute and say, oh, wait, I didn't realize it's two weeks earlier. Um, Can you get this out in time? And while it's not that hard for a click of the button with a transcript, um, if the letter of recommendation and not just from the counselor, but from the teachers um, as well wasn't ready, that can be pretty stressful. So um, it wasn't something that we loved. But again, it's not the vast majority of schools. There's just some outliers. 
Right. And I just, you know, want to put a PSA out there to all the parents. This is really on your student to know these deadlines. We talk a lot about getting organized, having a sheet. Um, the right response is not to go and yell at the school counselor. And I know that there are parents who do this. Most parents don't. But I know there are parents who do this. Um, this is really for your student to be on top of this. There's only so much that a school counselor can do, especially if they have a caseload of more than 50, uh, and many of them will have as many as 200, 300, 400 students, maybe more that they're responsible for. So it's up to the student. And I think the really tough thing is that at many public schools, especially, but schools in general, many counselors will have deadlines. You need to get your stuff in two weeks ahead of the school's actual deadline. And in that case, if you're looking at a October 10th deadline, Georgia Tech, Georgia residents, you know, you are you are probably needing to get your stuff done by the end of or shy just shy of the end of September, right? So like that's not a, a small thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, one more thing I would add is, um, and I'm not going through any specific schools, um, but be aware that there could be different deadlines, earlier deadlines for any special material, like an art portfolio um, or mostly art portfolios. Yeah. Um, so be, be aware um, if you are submitting that to double check deadlines. And I think another thing, um, another thing that we see sometimes, right, is that an earlier deadline for merit, um, University of South Carolina just announced early action this year for the very first time. But before this year, they had a priority deadline that was December 1st. It wasn't an early action program, but if you wanted to be considered for merit aid, you needed to get it in by that point. Emory has something similar with regular decisions. So I think my ultimate takeaway for everyone here, and Lauren, I don't know if there's anything else you would add, is just be organized when you know the schools that you're planning to apply to or as you add them to your list, get their application deadlines on there, read the fine print and know when things are available so that you can plan accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say if you do, that that is the point that you can't be organized unless you know your list. So it is the time to wrap up that list. Yes, yes, please it should be wrapped by now if it if it isn't. This is your homework for the day. Get that done and finalized by no later than October 15th. Um, and earlier, if you're going to apply to any of those schools we mentioned earlier today. Um, Lauren, thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Beth. Sure. All right. Next week, I am back. I mentioned I think I'm hosting pretty much every show this, this month, which I'm excited about. Um, and when we come back next week... It'll be 10 days to November 1st, another huge deadline. Um, we're also going to be um, talking, we're going to be answering your questions, doing a listener Q&A. So um, you don't want to miss that. Uh, don't forget, leave a review on Apple Podcasts for us. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. Obviously, we would love it if they're five-star reviews. Um, if you are tuning in every week, presumably you find this really helpful. Um, if you have questions, you can send them to us via Facebook, on Instagram. Uh, you could send them to our email address, gettingin.voiceofmail.com. America at gmail.com. Uh, and don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.